0: Eye, hold your head up high, till you find the blue bird of happiness. You will find greater peace of mind, knowing there's a bluebird of happiness, and when Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be completing our coverage of this Afghan Dick's 1967 novel about the Cold War and the arms race and alien invasions and and social relationships and all that kind of stuff. Drug abuse, drug use. It's all packed in here like a good typical Philip K. Dick novel. Um, So where we left off, um, we're at a crisis point. Earth is under attack by Slavers from another planet who just grab up whole cities of, of people take them to their satellite and send them off up to some kind of labor camp Or to some kind of work We also found out that The major tool that earth has for developing weapons has turned out to be just a conduit to a comic book Weapons designers go into trance states and through this trance state they learn about weapons and they, they bring these down kind of off the cloud, clouds develop them now usually these are just cloud shared but now that there's a real external threat people on both sides of the Iron Curtain must figure out a way to work together to to develop these weapons for real for real use but it turns out they're just imagining what someone else imagined uh, from um, a comic book writer so now they have to figure out how can they possibly find a weapon that can save them the good news is there seems to be a time traveler from the future war who knows how the war will one Eventually, and perhaps he has the knowledge to, to save the earth from the slavers. And that's where we, we left off uh, in chapter 25. So, this episode will cover chapter 26 to the end of, of the Zapdos. Chapter 26 opens with a low point. Lars, powder dry, has just learned that his mistress, Marin, has accidentally. Killed herself with a very vicious weapon, it took her six hours to die. Um, he thought he was, she was going to target uh, Lilo Topchev, a weapons designer from the Peep East, from the communist side of the Iron Curtain, but she killed herself instead. Lars went into a trance state after this to, in, in an effort to try to escape the situation, and, and he's out of it for a while. He also finds that Lilo's attempts to, fun, to use this time traveler to project onto him and to go into a trance state to learn what weapons he knows about uh, has failed because she just draws pictures of androids, of robots. So Lars goes back to Washington uh, to meet with Lilo and to discuss what their next move should be. He meets Lilo, they discuss the attack of Marin, Marin's attack on them, and how she, she and, and how his mistress died. She also shows her work, which are just the schematics of of androids. Useful, certainly, but not clearly something that can effectively defeat this alien invasion. In the meantime, in the time that Lars has been out of it, slavers have taken millions and millions of of humans from Earth into their their satellites. By this point, we've also learned a lot about these, these aliens. The human spy agencies have discovered what they can, Partially, also, they get this from Ricardo Hastings, who's this time-traveling war veteran. Brings all this news that eventually the war will be won, but the goal here is to try to win the war by knowing what weapon defeats the, uh, the slavers, but using it earlier in the war, using it right away to prevent them. And here's what he can report about them. they're slavers, their ch- they're chitness, quote, they have a physiological hierarchy dating back millions of years. On their planet, in their system, a little under nine light years from here, warm blooded life forms never evolved past the lemur stage. Araboreal with fox muzzles, most types nocturnal, some with pre tails. So they don't regard us as anything but sentient freaks. Just highly organized workhorse organisms that are somehow cleverly manual. They admire our thumb. We can do all sorts of essential jobs. They think of us the way we think that we do of rats. So that's the problem. We have an alien species that's. At, not even at war. You can't have war with a species you think is inferior to you. They're just grabbing these up for, for labor. And you got a bit, a bit of animal rights here. Dick plays with animal rights in this part of his career. It, it's come up in a few novels. It's there in Duet where dream of electric sheep. And it's there in a few others. I don't know how serious he was about animal rights at the time. But it seems to be on his mind because he, he makes this comparison a lot of the exploitation of one people uh, by another. To how humans have mistreated animals throughout the centuries, so we get a little subtext of this. In fact, here Lars actually talks about how we test rats, and so if they're treating us like we treat rats, then we're in big trouble. Lars, though, he wants to get a closer look at this Ricardo, and he wants Ricardo carbon dated. He thinks if they can, car- he thinks Ricardo is essentially an android, and that's why Lilo is getting these android schematics when she projects onto him in her trance states. So he thinks the only explanation for this is that he's actually an android. And so they can carbon date it, and what will the carbon dating tell you? Well, the carbon dating will tell us if the android was just recently made, or if he actually did come from the, the future. If he's from the future and he lived a full life as an android. So finally, they get the carbon date results. Oh, one more thing about this, though, is that Lars Party right knows that the only corporation that can make an Android this sophisticated and this well would be Land Permit Associates, which is actually his subsidiary company. They're the ones who manufacture the weapons that, that he designs. So um, it'll also kind of suggest a different layer of conspiracy if this robot is proven not to be old. But the carbon dating shows that the robot does was 115 years old. And so it does seem that he comes from the future, that he lived a full life, perhaps as an Android and then was sent back in time. So chapter 27 opens, Lars admits that he was wrong, that that really this, this guy is a time traveler. And he begins his own drug-induced trance state to try to figure out what he can um, from this Ricardo. And so he projects himself onto Ricardo the same way Lilo Topchift does, but we don't really see Lilo's trance state, what goes on in there. This is our, our closest look we get of what the trance state is is actually like, and we see him in the transit actually communicate and talk with Ricardo, this war veteran. And he goes into this long discussion explaining quite a lot to us. One thing he explains is that he is actually an android. Well, he first says, I'm an android, and I was a toy produced by clue Kluke was a toy manufacturer we met briefly in an earlier chapter, I think all the way back to chapter six or so, and he wanted to use Lamperman Associates auto effects to make a toy, and to mass distribute it, and he he often you know will use their services, so they know about him, but he's like a minor toy manufacturer, and Ricardo explains that he was, you know, made as a toy sometime in the future by by Klug. but there's really three explanations we could have for the set of facts we, we have here. One is that this guy has knowledge of the future. Now the question is, is that knowledge truthful or not, right? If it's truthful, it means he really a time traveler, but he could be, that I mean, that's the explanation we're given on the surface. But there's other explanations, right? One is that he's just telling a story and he's not actually a time traveler. And then there's two options. One is that he was built in 1898, because that's what the carbon dating would show. And that's almost, that's preposterous, right? The technology wasn't there to build in 1998. The only other way that he could be not a time traveler is if he was built with old components that, that would show 115 years of age in the carbon dating. But eventually he admits to being Vincent Klug himself, and actually not an android at all, but rather a, a time traveling Vincent Klug, who sometime after the war in the future used the, the time travel machine Okay, it's called a Time Warp Page Generator. This is the time travel device. And in Chapter 28, we, we get this fuller explanation about how he's actually clued. He's not an android. He's clued from the from the future. It doesn't quite explain why Lilo is getting the schematics of androids when she communicates with him. Maybe it's because of that robots are on his mind or he's trying to uh, convey certain messages to her. I'm not sure, but... He also explains that he's very limited in what he can bring back. He can't really bring back anything physical from, from the future to the past. And that he also has to be very dangerous about not changing the past. So this is a standard time paradox that if he changes the past, he may never exist in a state to go back in time. And so he has to be very, very careful. He can't be an oracle. He can't just explain what it is. He knows very well what. So most importantly, he can't talk about any future technology. He can only talk about something that already exists because that won't change the timeline at all. So there's kind of a middle ground here. Right? you know. This doesn't really, for me, solve the time travel paradox problem, but he does a kind of have a cop out here and say, well, we're talking about something that already exists. So the def- weapon that defeats the slavers is something that exists right now in this time period. It's not something that has to be developed later on. so therefore he doesn't have to be an oracle in order to do this. But he can't say exactly what it is. He can't go into more detail. So this leads Lars to go into a game of 20 questions with, with Ian Klug. And eventually the, he learns a couple of things. One is that what we're talking about here is actually a toy. It's not a, a weapon, so to speak. So they, by finding a weapon, by going through those old comic books trying to find the perfect weapon, he's been barking up the wrong tree. In fact, it's one of Klug's toys that is the, the key weapon. The key then is to find out which of Klug's toys it is. He ends the trance state and he actually has, doesn't have a sketch. You know, that's usually what he has after these translates to the sketch of a weapon. He doesn't have that now. Instead, what he has is some writing, and it says the blah, 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 some kind of he can't read his own handwriting there. The, the second word he can't read, in the maze. And he tries to think about what that is. And he assumes it means the man in the maze. But then Leela looks at it and she's able to, to, to figure out right away that it means the man in the maze. So that's the clue. So that's the end of chapter 28. So we got the key piece of information from the time traveler. In chapter 29, he's able to contact Klug and that company and the toys, and he was asked for essentially any mazes he has. I and mean, he does have one maze toy. And he gets this from Klug, and then they begin this process of analyzing this toy. And here's where the novel gets really kind of interesting. And it kind of goes back to this Dick theme of, of, of empathy. The maze that we get here, and the maze that that who gives him is an unwinnable maze. It's a, it's a maze that at first impression just constantly shifts. It starts out easy and you follow it and you send a little creature. It's actually a little like bear wub. A wub is like a Philip Dickian uh, creature, but it's kind of like a little bear thing. And it follows through the maze. At first it's easy. And then it'll get increasingly more and more difficult and more frustrating for the wog. And it's it's kind of, now at first, Lars has no idea why anyone would want to play an unwinnable maze. Now, this toy was actually made, so uh, that uh, big manufacturing company, it was actually AutoFact, and, and the prototype of this was, was made. So these, these exist, and they can be put back into production pretty easily. Um, now, it's not meant to just frustrate people, though. It's actually different than that. It's, now, normally, if you look at this maze, you just think, oh, this is a frustrating maze, and it's an unwinnable puzzle. Maybe people like that kind of thing. But it's not even about that. It's actually the maze has with it an empathic connection right, with this wolf creature in there, this, um, this little bear thing. And it's supposed to teach empathy, right? And that's the main point here, is that as you get it more difficult, you, you don't just watch this guy go through the maze, you, you experience his frustrations and anguish and terror and horror at being in the maze. So you actually feel yourself within the maze itself in this kind of uh, psychic way of the psychic connection to the frustration of the, of the animal. We were just reminded in the previous chapter, or maybe two chapters earlier, by Lars that we treat rats this way, right? And, and we put rats through this and we don't feel this empathetic connection, empathetic, empath, empathic connection to them. But that's the point of this toy. Lars though, he thinks, well, couldn't it be the other way around, couldn't it be, we, you know, go at this as this, right, if we get off on like the suffering of others, we could actually use this to torture the soul device. Right? But that doesn't seem to be its use. As the maze gets more difficult, the empathic connection increases. So it's designed to make the user feel the frustration of, of the creature. So it's inevitably it's going to teach, teach empathy. And then the idea simply becomes, perhaps we can use this, give this to the slavers in order to teach them, give them an empathic connection with us, right to kind of harness their, their potential for empathy. And Lars tries it out at one point. He tries it out, and he actually finds it works. It works, and it's successful. And that's the end of chapter 29. Um, in chapter 30, and now we're basically at the end of the story for all intents and purposes. In chapter 30, we're told that the slavers have withdrawn. So a lot happened in, off screen here. And I don't know if that's you know, good or bad. It, it just We jump from this realization that's this Eureka moment when they realize that this toy can maybe teach the slavers to see us not as monsters, but as as beings that suffer. Um, but it works, somehow giving them these, they manufacture these and give them to the slavers, they eventually withdraw, leaving humans behind and normal, normal life on earth resumes. And now the question we ask is, can the system be restored? Usually Philip Dick, when he has a system, you know, usually based on deception, when it breaks apart, it it never is static, right? These these systems are always fluctuating in Dick's world. And usually though, he ends the novel before we know the outcome of it, right? So we, we just see the system disrupted. Here, the disruption to the system is the arrival of the aliens themselves, where official enemies have to work together, right? And they can't make fake weapons anymore, they have to make real weapons. But at the same time, this increases distrust between the forces. As well, so it kind of complicates that relationship here. So, here we actually see the transition in the state or the potential, and here, though, it seems things sort of go back to normal. The difference, though, is we really don't have uh, weapons the need for the weapon designers anymore because that's already been exposed as just simply the comic book thing. But it seems Lars, you know, sort of still has his job, he's still doing his thing, he still has his branch offices. In fact, he wants Lilo Topchev to to have a life with him, and wants him to wants her to run the Paris branch of his company, which was Marin's old job. So he actually finds a replacement for for Marin. Chris talks of using this weapon aggressively, though, when the re- weapon weapon was used, the weapon is to this toy, but it was used defensively, right? But Lars reports on how they're thinking in the government of using this to send it to the serious planet itself to stop them from being slavers altogether, right? Because the planet is still slaving. They're still going around the universe finding slavers. They may leave humans alone now because they have this empathetic attitude towards them, but that's not going to be universal. They're still going to have those feelings for others. Uh, They talk a little bit about the concept of love and caring and empathy and and the different terminology of it. This is something Dick was very much interested in and here we we see him playing with it. The root word of care is caritas, which means love or esteem. Um, and then you have, of course, agape, which is closer to kind of empathy, right? This, this kind of general feeling of, of love and caring for others. They talk about Lilo and Marin and this kind of swap of the relationship. They have a bit of a discussion about this. Where they talk about the difficulty of monogamy, for instance. And they talk a lot about Lilo's future, they, they've developed this relationship, but Lilo's future really is back in Peep East, and she sort of, part of her wants to go back and do that. She doesn't just want to be the replacement for Mayor. she's well aware that, that Lars just, seen, just seems to be replacing Mayor with, with Lilo, and on some level she resents that. Um, but there's also this fear that Lars is going to go back into his same malaise, and he's actually had suicidal thoughts in this, this denouement of, of the chapter. Um, so she actually gives him these drugs, which, if he ingests them, could could kill him. You know, giving him this choice to pursue suicide or not. And she talks about how she's thinking about going to the Soviet embassy for jobs. So it's kind of a bittersweet conclusion to the novel that the the threat of aliens is gone, but Lars' overall problem in life isn't solved. So he's got still got to find meaning. And that was even more acute than ever, because he's not going to be able to go really back to the same pre-banana, weapons designer status anymore. His his life has changed. His function has changed. And now, partially because he knows where the weapons come from. So that's chapter 30. Chapter 31 continues with this. Um, He has these three pills of foropane that Lilo gave him. And he's considering suicide. Lilo's getting dressed. And... She eventually comes back, and after getting dressed, she, she talks with Lars and, and agrees to take over one of the Paris office. and she accepts her role as sort of Marin's replacement. And this is a bit troublesome, I think. Uh, Lilo is we've seen again and again as capable, of, uh, young, brilliant. Um, yet she's capable of a career of her own, but she seems to be a content here, just taking over Marin's old position and taking over the position of not even Lars's wife, but his, his mistress. You sort of agree to, to try to make a life with each other and to, to work out. So that's, I'm reminded of Now Waits for Last Year's ending where you had, you know, a couple that was in crisis and the decision at the end is, is to basically try to make it work, do the best you can with the bad luck you got. Um, here, these these, are, these characters aren't nearly as bad a state as... as um, you know, Mrs. Sweetsent was, and now for last year. You can go back and listen to my comments on the final, the final comments on that novel. This group, a little, this this pairing, is a little bit more stable, but they do agree to try to make make a life together. So it is kind of a a nice ending, even though we know that some of the problems are going to re- remain. Now, before saying goodbye to Lars and Lilo and, and wish them happiness ever after, we have a little scene where they talk to the Orville. The Orville was a plow shared. Technology from, that was made earlier, and Lars talked to it about suicide in an earlier chapter. And this was something Marin had, and it's like a kind of a fortune-telling little toy where you can tell it questions, it'll cycle, analyze, you, will dig up information, they will try to give you advice. It's like an AI that that's essentially a, a a magic eight ball with artificial intelligence and access to all the computers in the world, or something, and. She goes in to discuss with the Orville, and he asks about suicide. He comes down and says, you know, essentially, should I kill myself? And here's what the Orville responds. He says, instead of poisoning yourself, and also and also instead of wasting 40 years waiting on something which you've already decided to abandon, and you have ignored this, Mr. Lars, when you went to Fairfax to see Mrs. Topcha the first time, you had already stopped loving, you have already stopped loving Mary and Jane. Instead of those options, instead of pining over Aaron, who he doesn't love anymore, instead of just waiting to die for 40 years, just his, running through the motions, and instead of killing himself now, the advice is, and this is given by this toy, essentially, is, is to sleep with Lila Kopchev, to, to you know, bind with her. And, and that's what they do, and that's how it, how, that's how it's not off. So I don't know how you feel about this. This is kind of like a an autumn-spring romance. Lilo's much younger. She's like 20 or even 18, 19. He's much, you know, Lars is much older, middle age already. There there, isn't a clear power dynamic here, but there is this kind of oddness where he he kind of wants her, her working for him in the Paris office rather than doing her own career because he wants to keep her close. Um, but there's... Um, it's a successful relationship as far as Philip Dick novels go, and, you know, I see in a lot of Dick's stories from this time, it even comes up in New Andrews, Dream of Electric Sheep. Um, we saw it in Maui for last year. It's just an ex- coming to acceptance over the relationships we have, rather than uh, than trying to to be too forceful. I mean, kind of just... with it and i I don't know what quite i can't really say in detail right now what dick was going through in his relationships in in the mid-60s but we just see this kind of um this need to kind of build on relationships with people rather than kind of searching rather than questing for something something whole the last two chapters of the novel are kind of added on The, the story is basically told but we might be wondering, well, what about Febs? Last we saw, Surly Febbs, he has he was pissed off about not being part of the, not being allowed in as a commodity due to the crisis. He organized the other six commodities who who had come, and he formed an organization. And in the meantime, since we last met him, his organization has evolved from just something about the rights of these commodities to really something trying to seek the overthrow of the entire government. So he's he's gone full nutcase here, full right-wing, anti-government, conspiracy theorist revolution. Um, And they've had several meetings and they formed this organization, but this meeting, everyone's brought in part of a weapon. And so what they're gonna do is they're going to make this weapon in this meeting. And this weapon is going to be Something they use to help affect their revolution. After making this weapon though, he decides he doesn't need these other five people anymore and he kills them with this weapon. So it's just him. Um, and so basically we're left with this idea that there's this terrorist running loose with this high power weapon in a world that's you know mostly been plow-shared. There's not much need for weapons out there. But then he gets a package, he gets this weird package, and he opens it, and the package is this mains. It's the same maze that was used against the Cirrus slavers. He goes uses the maze, he ends up getting this empathic connection to the maze and he feels himself tied into the maze. And the last we see of Febs is his consciousness, for all intents and purposes, is stuck in this never-ending, unwinnable maze. And the final chapter just explains that this package was sent by the state. They, were, they knew about Thebs's movement. He was never much of a threat to them. It was just more of the delusions of grandeur that Febz has been feeling throughout the whole story. And they had this very easy way to deal with them. They didn't even have to kill him. And in fact, Febz did the job of killing off most of his group anyways. And so we're just in the office of a bureaucrat in the side of the surveillance state that watches the, you know what the cameras see. And we see him at work. And that's all. It's a short chapter, only four or five pages. And, um, and just explains how they took him out with the empathic device. And and that's it. So what do we make from that final chapter? I don't know. I mean, even with um, Lars and with the whole plowsharing program, you know, it's not clear what is going to continue into the post-war with the serious slavers period or not. Right. We don't even get that very clearly from the war veteran, from from Kluke. We don't know what's going to happen afterwards. So it's a little bit unwritten. You know, and Dick's never one to really fully write what's gonna happen after this crisis. But we do see the state continuing. We see the state continuing to function and doing its job and, and suppressing the, these movements. So, I mean, the Feds. you know, the Feb's storyline, I guess, shows that even though the state in much of the novel, in this novel is shown as kind of feeble and weak and kind of jokey and Lars, you know, he, hates the idea of working for a government that's not really serious about its own lies, you know, that it does have some teeth to it, and it has these abilities to to use these weapons to take out people. And they don't just have to be weapons of, of war. They don't have to just be violence. In this case, a toy becomes a much more effective weapon. So um, that's it. That's the Zap Gun. Now, in the time I have left, I just want to talk about some general, I guess, interpretation of, of this novel and where into his overall work. Um, so Dick wrote the Autofact back in 1955, or he published it first in 1955, and that, that shows the post-war world in which the entire population is dependent on an automated factory for consumer goods, including like synthetic milk even. The human survivors of that cataclysmic conflict developed a desire for independence, mostly because the automatic factories rapidly consumed the Earth's resources in preparation for war. The autofacts were originally established by humans to provide labor for the war effort. As in wartime, most of these resources remain applied to the military. Most troubling, though, the original programmers created the automatic factories to continue the war effort, and the consumption of resources without direct human oversight, in an effort to ensure victory even in the face of ultimate destruction. As the plot unfolds, survivors try to use complaints and finally sabotage to destroy the autofact and salvage hope for human survival. Unfortunately, the automatic factory was also programmed to be self-repairing. Human dependency on the robots is ensured, as is the consumption of every last natural resources and the annihilation of the rest of humanity. So this is Dick's central fear of technology. Of course, we've seen this so many times in the podcast, especially in the 50s. But I think in this, by the 60s, Dick is getting uh, more subtle and more interesting about technology. The Zapgun... This- problematic is studied after a solution is sort of worked out between consumer goods and and weapons of war. That is, the production of military weapons, the need for consumer goods, for social control, and Cold War anxieties are all intersected in the novel. Dick himself didn't like this novel. He called it totally unintelligible and quote-unquote turkey. He doesn't even mention it in his exegesis, but he mentions many other earlier works. Now, in this novel, *The afternoon, the Cold War has died down. Neither side is interested in destroying each other anymore. Both agree that it would be catastrophic. However, the facade of the conflict remains politically powerful at home for both sides. One character even mentions Orwell when pondering how unnecessary real war is. Both sides maintain this secret police and espionage apparatus, of course, but they don't do anything really significant. They're spying on each other as just a show. Weapon systems of mass destruction are created. Entire bands of scientists are devoted to the trouble of how to create the most destructive weapons. However, these weapons are never really produced except as goods for the consumer economy. Right? Um, the planned obsolescence of military technology has morphed into the planned obsolescence of consumer goods, therefore. And, which is maybe more useful. Like a nuclear bomb that has to be replaced, but never used. You know, compared to like a toaster that you have to replace every few years, you know, at least the toaster's getting used, right? Then bombs just sitting there looking scary. But this creates less potential and real destruction to the economy by war, but it keeps up the facade of the Cold War, allowing citizens to participate in that war as consumers of toy weapons or other consumer device. It's the important job to the technocracy. However, here the technocracy is really working at a strange psychic level, pulling ideas from just from popular culture, this makes the weapons that they developed very science fiction-y, the, the titular zap gun. But quite an elegant solution to the problems faced by the late Soviet Union, for instance, was their overinvestment in weapons of war led to them failing to meet the consumer needs of its citizens. And the same thing is true to a degree in China, where now they're trying to repair this by creating a more consumer consumer goods. They have a rising middle class, but not really the consumer goods are available. And This is one reason they justify bringing in capitalism, and capital again, because this is creating the consumer goods that the state-owned industries couldn't do. Um, but this is only possible when both sides agree on the futility of arms threats. Now many of these weapons are really imaginative. Dick here seems to have even predicted drone strikes in one of the weapons. Quote, a needle identification was the fundamental direction which weapons have been looking to take for nearly half a century. It meant simply weapons with the most precise effect conceivable. In theory, it was possible to imagine a weapon as yet unbuilt, probably untranced of it by Mr. Lars himself, still, that would stay in one given individual, well, given a given individual at a given instant, in, at a given intersection in one particular city in Peep East, West Block. What difference did it make? And uh, the important thing would be the existence of the weapon itself, the perfect weapon. Now in the world of the gun technology is the solution to any possible problem. Although here, technology exists almost exclusively as toys and consumer goods. And here, here's where Klug is important here, because Klug is the one who insists on the, the, the idea that the world needs toys. To quote the book, this was the answer to whatever riddle the serious members of society confronted themselves with. Poverty, deranged, sex crimes, senility, altered genes from overexposure to radiation. You name the problem, and Klug opened his enormous sample case and hold up the solution. Lars had heard the toy maker expound on this on several occasions. Life itself was unendurable, an and hence had to be ameliorated. As a thing in itself, it could not actually be lived. There had to be some way out. Mental, moral, physical hygiene demanded it." End quote. So this is not a bad idea, I, I rather like it. I, I don't think Klug is wrong. I, th- I think we need toys, we need play, and I think this is a solution to the autofact problem that Dick has. Now, Dick can't ever avoid thinking you need work, you need meaningful work, and he writes a whole novel called *Galactic Pie Hero* hero healer arguing this. But the robots are coming. The fact the autofact is coming, so we need to know how to get meaning in life in ways that don't involve work, and we need to learn from the idlers and the board game players and the people who play baseball and you know and, and you know even invent a game like baseball that can go to 18, 19 innings, and and that's just part of the design of it. I mean, we need to cultivate leisure, I think. And that's not because being lazy is a good thing. It's just because we're going to have to find ways to be meaningful without work, is is my fear. Um, So even rejecting the post-scarcity prediction that labor will eventually all be play or have to be converted to play, we can see that more work is not the solution to many of our social problems, right? I I think Japan's a good case. Japan has the problem of low birth rates. And so they don't have a workforce. So the solution has been to bring more people, more women into the workforce, right? Which only makes the birth rate problem worse because families don't spend time together, don't have as many kids. So let's not see work as a solution to problems. I, I I think you see in places like China, East Asian general, an idea that work, more hours, you know, grades are bad, you don't reform education, you you create cram schools to improve the grades, so kids go to school after school. So, more focus on toys is what I think this book can tell us, and that's why I think Klug is an important character here. Now this world is unprepared for an alien invasion, lacking any functional weapons, and as the main character seemed miserable since his work is without meaning. As far as dystopias go though, this one's not bad. The worst people face here is a name consumerism. That has been shown in many of Dick's short stories. It's not being really as bad as the technology invested in war. So um, that's my thoughts on the on Zap. I thoughts. I like this novel, I think it has a lot to offer. So, um, but I'm gonna stop now, I'm gonna let you, you guys pick it up. If you have thoughts about this novel, you can write me at 100 gmail.com or leave comments below and um i will be back next time with with one of my review of Counter Clock World. Well, that's not one of my favorites, but we'll see what if i can find some renewed re- revitalized love for this for this novel. So i'll see you then. Thanks for listening. and contentment forever if you're